Welcome to Managed Carecast, a podcast from the American Journal of Managed Care. As a progressive disease, diabetes presents an ongoing challenge for physicians to provide adequate control of patients' diabetes, and new agents with novel mechanisms of action help reduce the burden in the management of diabetes. In a recent peer exchange discussion, Dr. Peter Salgo of Columbia University College of Physicians and Surgeons and New York Presbyterian Hospital led a discussion on novel agents and their role in treating patients with and without cardiovascular disease. On the panel was Dr. Om Ganda of Joslin Diabetes Center, Jim Kenny of JT Kenny, a managed care consulting practice, and Dr. Helena Rodbard, past president of the American College of Endocrinology and past president of the American Association of Clinical Endocrinologists. Here you can listen to part of the discussion. Why don't we begin with something very basic? Let's talk about pathophysiology, diabetes, and specifically type 2 diabetes. What are we dealing with? Well, we're really dealing with a progressive disease. It's a disease that's just exploding throughout the world. It's basically characterized by high blood glucose levels. So that's a very simplistic explanation. But you know, it sounds simple. But when we, we're going to start digging into this. Very complex, and we are very fortunate that nowadays we have a plethora of new medications, better forms to diagnose and to treat our patients with type 2 diabetes. Now, in, this, in this country alone, we have over 30 million people with diagnosed diabetes and about 80 million with pre-diabetes. We're going to get into that too. But before we start, let's just make the distinction. I know it sounds simple. It may not be distinguish between type 2 and type 1 diabetes? Very different diseases. They ultimately, both diseases, type 1 and type 2, are characterized by high blood glucose levels. However, people with type 2 diabetes start out with insulin resistance. So their pancreases are still producing insulin, and in fact, they may actually be overproducing insulin. Different from people with type 1, which is an autoimmune disease in which the beta cells of the pancreas have lost their ability to produce insulin. You know, again, it sounds simple, but when I was in medical school, when pterodactyls flew through the air, that wasn't so clear. Type 2 was called adult onset, type 1 was juvenile onset, and it was just an age thing. It's, a, it's two different diseases. It is totally different, and in fact, a lot of people with type Two diabetes are being misdiagnosed and vice versa. People with type 1 diabetes, just because they are younger, they are being labeled people with type 2 diabetes that are younger are being mislabeled as having type 2 diabetes. So, so age is no longer criteria. Age is not the issue. No. So there are older people with type 1, younger people with type 2, different diseases and you can get them at different ages. Exactly right. Age See, is overlap, no longer huh? criteria. I told you this was complicated. All right, let's talk about the microvascular and the macrovascular complications now of type two, because I think everybody associates type one with all these horrendous changes, but type two is not off the hook. No, not at all. Uh, you know, the, the complications of diabetes are really what causes havoc in people with diabetes. So we have two major types of complications, microvascular, that includes retinopathy, nephropathy, now known as CKD, or chronic kidney disease, uh, and neuropathy, both peripheral and autonomic. So these complications are not different from what we see in type 1 diabetes. 
they occur in all kinds of diabetes, uh, hyperglycemia, and how long you've had these complications. Let me ask yeah. a difficult, if not impossible, question. If these are two distinct diseases, each characterized by hyperglycemia, and yet they converge on their vascular complications, why? Right. So I think it's the pathophysiology as we began to address. Long-term hyperglycemia over a period of years will cause certain changes that lead to not only microvascular changes, but some other metabolic changes that lead to these microvascular complications. But let me just uh, add that as far as the cardiovascular complications are concerned, or macrovascular complications, as you said, again, there are three kinds. Cardiovascular complications include coronary artery disease, strokes, and peripheral vascular disease. Now, these are not unique to diabetes, unlike microvascular complications. They get aggravated in the presence of diabetes, not only hyperglycemia, but other major risk factors, uh, high cholesterol, particularly LDL cholesterol, other lipids, and hypertension. So there are, are the fellow travelers that are coming Absolutely. along. This is a complicated disease. It's a very complicated disease. Now, the object, of course, would be to at least keep patients from manifesting these things, right? So if we're going to talk about profiling people, who do you start to look at? If you're going to spend money looking for this and to prevent it going forward, who are the prime candidates? There are lots of people that unfortunately are candidates developing diabetes. People that have a family history of diabetes, certain populations, African Americans, Latinos, Asian Americans, Native Americans, Pacific Islanders, these people are at much higher risk for developing diabetes. It's genetic. But there also are certain conditions like gestational diabetes in women that will predispose people to developing, or women to developing later diabetes. I've heard this. If a woman has gestational diabetes, let's say in her 30s, she is more likely to go on and become a type 2 diabetic later in life? For sure. She has a much enhanced chance, unfortunately, of developing type 2 diabetes. And also women that have polycystic ovary syndrome are very good candidates for developing type 2 diabetes. You'll forgive me, but we're adding to this bucket. At the end of the day, pretty much everybody's in this bucket. Does it make any difference? Are there people you would not screen? Well, I think that's a very good question, and this has been debated. Uh, diabetes is a progressive disease, and the earlier we diagnose it, the better. We know that uh, certain ethnic populations are more at risk, as Helena said. Uh, people who have family history and people who are having progressive weight gain these are some of the major risk factors that should uh, really uh, you know, uh, make us think about diabetes and screen people for diabetes. Okay, let me get one more definition on the table, because I hear this all the time from a patient. If you say, do you have a history of diabetes? No, doc, but I have a history of pre-diabetes. Mm -hmm. Is that a real thing? Well, we hear quite often people being totally oblivious to the fact that they may actually have diabetes. They call it a touch of sugar. There are all kinds of euphemisms that we hear. But some people truly have prediabetes, and it's very important to diagnose prediabetes. I keep hearing this. What is prediabetes? There are several definitions for prediabetes. The American Diabetes Association made it very easy nowadays. All we need to do is to get a blood sample, a hemoglobin A1C, and if the level is between 5.7 and 6.4, the A1C. Hemoglobin A1C yep. level, right. 
this person is labeled as having prediabetes. There are other criteria as well. A fasting plasma glucose between 100 and 125 milligrams per deciliter. Above 126, it is overt diabetes. Less than that, it can be prediabetes. You'll forgive me, if I found somebody that I was checking a fasting blood sugar on of 120, I'd say you are a diabetic, let's get busy. Is it, is it psychologically less intrusive to say you're a pre-diabetic? No, it's not. Actually, it should be an alert. It should be a red flag for the person that has pre-diabetes. And that is an optimal time for us to intervene and try to prevent the person from going down that slippery slope, going from pre-diabetes to overt diabetes with all of the complications that we just heard okay. from all. But let me ask this question, because implied in your answer is that if we intervene, we can make a difference. Is it possible to take somebody with prediabetes and by intervening, prevent them from becoming diabetic or is it inevitable? We have a lot of evidence for that. We have a number of long-term diabetes prevention trials that have been carried out, including one in our own country called the DPP program. And we took people like this who had prediabetes, various ethnic backgrounds, and put them on a diet and exercise program or a pill. And we were able to show in the course of three years that we can prevent the progression from prediabetes to diabetes by 58%, call it 60%. Now, first of all, that's a huge number. I mean, we're used to seeing uh, 3%, 4%, that's significant. That's a big number. It was it's, revealing, it was really eye-opener. It really is, I mean, yeah. important safety tip, get on this thing. Amazing, absolutely amazing. And actually, this is the group, as Am said, that had intensive lifestyle modification. And what they meant by intensive lifestyle modification, basically exercising 30 minutes, five times a week, not something that's unsurmountable. Most of us can do that. And losing 7% of the body weight. Okay, we're going to get on both of those because they may not be insurmountable. They may not be Mount Everest, but they might be Mount McKinley for some people. Getting there. <laughs> um, one last question about this. If anybody is symptomatic, and by symptomatic we mean polyuria, polydipsia, uh, any of the symptoms of diabetes, is that prediabetes ever, or is that just overt diabetes? Well, the cat is out of the bag at that point. The person has diabetes. If they have yeah. symptoms, they have diabetes. Our challenge is to detect the people before they develop symptoms, and we try to okay. prevent and them from And in most cases, fasting blood glucose will be way over 126, okay? okay? And the hemoglobin A1C will be clearly above 6.5, but likely more than 7% by right. the time you have symptoms. The number of people I see with being followed with 7 and 7.5 is depressing, actually. How big a burden is this economically to this country, diabetes type 2? So it has a huge economic burden on society. And when you think about the uh, complications, microvascular and macrovascular, of this disease, uh, that adds significant expense in the cardiovascular space. From the patient's perspective, it's also a huge burden because patients are often on multiple medications. Most patients are on 2.5, three medications to try to control the diabetes, those with type 2 diabetes, and certainly the insulins are very expensive, and we see that's a, a big topic on the news these days. There's lots of expense, out-of-pocket expense for patients, uh, and, it, and it chews up their deductible, and their, their co-insurance or co-pays are quite significant. So it makes it challenging to make the patient compliant with therapy because you've got to combine all these but different let, medications. But let's parse this out for a minute, because I do want to talk about the burden and the impact on a patient's life, but now let's just talk dollars and cents. I mean, to be brutal about it, if you don't treat diabetes, these patients die earlier. Is it cost effective to treat them or not? Is the cost of diabetes untreated greater or less than the cost of treating it? 
I think the cost of diabetes is better if you treat it, uh, better controlled if you treat it, because those complications can persist for a long time. So you can have a, a patient who has a stroke. They could, they, they could live for many years after the stroke, and you've got, the, you've got to you know, pay the cost of treating that patient for a long period of time. Mm -hmm. What do you say to a patient who says to you, my doctor just told me I've got diabetes, uh, I gotta take all these meds and I can't afford them. What do you say? Well, you try to help the patient. I mean, we have case managers in the health systems that try to work with patients, try to identify copay assistance programming. Uh, there are certainly lots of generic options in the space. Uh, most patients are gonna start with metformin, which is very inexpensive, and we see a lot of uh, other drugs in this category where there are differences between the choices that can be less expensive for a patient, but they also have to try to find a health plan or an insurance design that promotes some of the lower cost options as well. Now, we were talking about who needs to be screened, and we've been talking about people with overt diabetes that need to be treated. Are there payer criteria for testing uh, these patients or these prospective patients? I mean, are there, are there ladders that people have to, to look at before you say, I'm going to pay for a, a test for an A1C or a fasting blood glucose? I think for the most part, the screening tests are paid for universally. I don't think there's a lot of restrictions there. A lot of these tests are now conducted in the physician office, uh, fairly inexpensive, part of routine physicals or, or visits. So uh, not, not a huge burden to the testing. There may be burdens to get to certain drugs in certain order uh, and certain requirements for patients to get to those. But, but as far as tests and routine screening, I don't think that plans typically are going to put barriers in place. Do you test everybody? I mean, you're an endocrinologist, but if, if let's say a primary care, there's somebody that person is seeing for the first time, would it be routine for you to get an A1C and a fasting blood glucose? Well, by the time somebody comes to us, they already have diabetes. Well, put yourself but in the chair if of I'm somebody my, who's a, going takes to wear, all comers. If I'm going to wear the hat of a primary care physician, depending on the family history. I would certainly put great emphasis on the family history. I would put emphasis on the other topics that we discuss, such as race, depending where they live, depending also whether the woman had gestational diabetes, polycystic ovary, all of the risk factors. But having a first degree relative is very important. Also elderly people, and I hate to call elderly over the age of 60. Don't data, you dare. I'm sorry. <laughs> you just lost a chunk of our uh -oh, audience. Oh, sorry, <laughs> present company included. <laughs> Constantly but, moving target. <laughs> <laughs> it is, but it's been shown that 23% of people over the age of 60 have diabetes. So this is a huge, huge so, burden. And going back to what Jim said, if we are going to put dollars and cents on the economic burden of it, last year it was $327 billion, B, B billion beta B, and of which 237 billion were cost related okay. to medications, but primarily the complications. And $90 billion was the cost of lost quality of life. Okay. And quality of life is something that we should really consider very seriously. So let me throw something out very briefly before we move on. I'm a primary care physician. It cost me virtually nothing to get an A1C and a fasting blood sugar. Even a random. So I'm going to take everybody. I'm going to test everybody, and I don't care what their family history is, what their age is. What's so wrong about that? Yeah, I mean, the only other cost you can argue about is the A1C test. Blood glucose is part of the chemistry profile, right? Right. So I think given what we have just uh, discussed, I think in people who have even modest increase in the risk of diabetes, it's good to get an A1C. And actually, you can get it from the same sample. So there's one more, no more filbotomy required. I guess all that I'm saying is, in this country, at this time, 
pretty much everybody is at some risk for diabetes. You might as well check because it's cheap. How's that? Why not? So, what about the new ADA and AACE guidelines? Do they recommend that? Well, they don't really recommend universal screening. They can't do that for obvious reasons. No, no, what's so obvious? But, Why not? Well, they can't recommend it because there is a dollar implication to their dollars and cents. But he so, just said it's cheap. Well, I think from the plan's perspective, yeah, why wouldn't you want to identify these patients? Because certainly if you have a patient with disease that's not being treated, then they're already on the road to complications, which are going to cost and, the and health in a practical money. way, if you if you add up all the risk factors that you talk about in the ADA or ACE or Jocelyn, any guideline, it'll all add up to about 60% of the people above the age of 40 who need screening. That's my point. So why not screen almost screen all everyone. of the people at the right age group with the right ethnic background? discussion, visit AJMC.com or see the show notes. To get in touch with us, you can email info at AJMC.com or follow us on Twitter at AJMC underscore journal. And if you like the podcast, don't forget to subscribe and rate us.